Hello, and welcome to the Gravel Ride Podcast. I'm your host, Craig Dalton. This week on the podcast, we've got Dave Rosen, CEO and founder of Sage Bicycles out of Oregon. Dave and I happened to meet at the Envy Builder Roundup, and this is one of five episodes related to the Envy Roundup that happened at the end of June in Ogden, Utah. I have to reiterate, if you're known for the company you keep, Envy is known for exceptional relationships. That room was filled with outstanding builders from all over the world that chose to spec their custom creations with Envy components and parts, including their adventure fork, stems, bars, and of course their wonderful gravel wheels. If you haven't already followed Envy on social media channels, definitely do. And I highly, highly recommend you seeking out imagery from the Grodio event. So many beautiful bikes, so many beautiful paint jobs, really worth looking at and keeping on your calendar for next year. If you happen to have the opportunity to race the Grodio event, it was an amazing ride out of Ogden, Utah that really checked a lot of boxes for me. It was both technical and challenging and scenically beautiful definitely one to have on your gravel calendar for 2022. With all that said, let's dive right into my interview with Dave Rosen from Sage Bicycles. Dave, welcome to the show. Thanks, Craig. Great to see you after seeing you in Utah at the Envy Builder Roundup. What what an event it was. It really was fantastic. I had such a good time. It was so much fun just being able to reconnect with friends and doing industry stuff again it just it was way too long and to be able to meet new customers and that kind of thing it just it just it was great and then just riding bikes it was all about bikes just everything we did from grodeo to the little short track event it was a really good time yeah i thought it was funny that some of the builders were actually taking the bikes they built and racing them or riding them in the grodeo event the next day (laughs) yeah that's what i did with mine it was just that's why I brought it. It was. It's meant to be ridden. It's meant to be raced. Although I really wouldn't classify my riding as racing so much as it was surviving at my own pace so I can make it back in time for beer. There was a bit of that survival strategy in my day as well. But it was a great reminder in seeing all these great builders that I've wanted to have more of these conversations and particularly excited to talk about Sage Titanium. So why don't we just start off with learning a little bit more about what led you to start the company and when it was started. Yeah. So I started the company officially on paper in 2012. My first inventory was produced in 2013. At the time, the original intent with the brand was to actually make the frames overseas for that in the beginning with the idea of offering a lower cost price point competitor to what was out there. I knew I wanted to do titanium. It was always about titanium. I've been in love with titanium as a frame material for ever since the 80s when I would see titanium Italian bikes rolling around in Central Park, New York City, which is where I'm originally from. Not Central Park, mind you, but New York City. And for me, it was always about tie. But In this instance, I thought it might be good to do a price point. And what I realized is over the course of that first year is the quality suffered. And the reality is you get what you pay for. And yeah, the pricing could be cheap, but there's a reason why it's cheap. And so the quality of the bike suffered. The stuff we put out was fine, but we had more failures than we had successes. And we've taken care of all of our customers that have had issues. And then there are others that we've never heard from. Everything's fine. 
Was well, there, Dave, was there a particular style of bike that you targeted at that time? It was a bit early, obviously, for gravel in those days in 2012. Yeah. We did actually, uh, while we did have a road bike, it was more about the cyclocross bike. And we actually had a commuter bike that would be the precursor to the current gravel. It was designed around larger tires, not as massive as what you're seeing today. And the geometry was more relaxed than a road bike, similar to a cross bike, but with a longer wheelbase. So it really was very versatile. And we actually marketed it more as a commuter bike, both a drop bar and a flat bar version, basically the same frame, just different build. But it showed the versatility of the bike for what it could be. Gotcha. And, uh, so in that yeah. first year, you were unhappy with the production partner in China that you had. Yeah. It could very easily have been the end of Sage Titanium at that point. But what did you do? I basically just stepped back for a moment and analyzed what was going on. People, customers liked the concept of our brand. They liked what we were doing as a small builder or the just the ability to offer it's this Oregon, the Oregon brand connection, all that sort of stuff. The bikes were authentic. The designs were good, but it was just they liked what we were doing, but they didn't necessarily like the made in China aspect. And so it yeah, you're absolutely right. We could have folded up right then and there and not known what to do. But instead, I, I made the decision to push forward with made in USA. And so in 2014, is when I pivoted the brand. And instead of being more of a budget-focused, mid-tier titanium brand, I was like, we're going all in on the premium stuff. And that's when we started our relationship with Envy. And instead of Shimano 105, we're now buying Shimano Durace. And it's all carbon this, and it's just, we're going high end. And frames are made in USA. That is always the key. And being able to push that out and, uh, and get that out there. And then as we've as the brand has moved along, we've been able to slowly evolve it. So the designs have gotten better. The line has expanded. We found our niche with gravel bikes in particular, and then the mountain bikes are doing really well for us. But then we've been able to expand with now our finishes. And so we've been able to continue to evolve the brand over these past, from where it started nine years ago uh, to where it is now, the brand's it's a complete turnaround. Other than the name, there there's not much that's the same between the two. Interesting. So... Can you talk to the listener a little bit about why you love titanium as a frame material with a particular eye on the gravel market and what makes it a great material for gravel bikes? Sure. So the reason I love titanium is it was always, for me growing up, it was that space age material. It was the stuff that was used in the space shuttle and fighter jets and, and that sort of thing. So it's got this mystique about it, if you will. It was back in the I'm trying not to date myself, but back in the 80s, it was lighter, it was sexier, it was, it wasn't, nothing wrong with steel. I love steel, I love aluminum, I love carbon, everything has its place for where it should be, but the the tie bikes back then, there was just something mystical about them. You'd see plenty of steel bikes riding around, plenty of aluminum bikes, but it was very few titanium bikes. When you saw one, it was special. And so that always made an imprint on me kind of thing. And that's where I initially fell in love with it. The What has drawn me to it from a builder standpoint, and the reason why I only focus on titanium, is because of the durability of the material, the the how far it can bend the fatigue resistance of the material, and the fact that it's rust proof. It's I live in the Pacific Northwest. Steel bikes are awesome, but they can rust if you don't take care of them. And if you take care of them, they're fine. But if you don't, they can rust. Titanium doesn't rust. Titanium 
has a higher fatigue resistance point where you can bend the tube farther in titanium and it'll snap back before it breaks versus steel or aluminum for that matter. So inherently then it then gives itself this ride quality. Again, maybe this is an old term, but it was called the magic carpet ride because it just smooths everything out. And it's one of those things that when you're on it, if you ride a carbon bike on chip seal or an aluminum bike on chip seal or even steel for that matter, but then you ride a tie, it, there's a vibration. But if you ride titanium on chip seal, it mutes it out. It's just it's really amazing what the material can do. And the fact that it can be repaired easily, it's it's the forever bike. You're going to have a tie bike for 20, 30, 40 years. The only reason to change it at some point is just because it's outdated and that's and even then that's not really a reason to change it because there's always the desire to keep those historical bikes yeah my father's got one sitting in the garage with i think a mag 21 fork on it and cantilever brakes oh wow and he'll never get rid of it yeah it's sort of no reason for him to replace it other than he doesn't know what he's missing because he's never ridden disc disc brakes at this point exactly but beyond that it's just it's a bike he's going to keep and he's got a lot of good memories for it so Sounds like you were early at, at Sage thinking about the cross market and the commuter market. When did gravel start to become a thing? When did you start to see those trends start to appear in what your customers were asking for? I would say I started to see it in 2015, 2014 and 2015. So the, our first USA frames were 2014. We had a road, we had a road frame and a cross, which we brought up. We improved the designs based on what was originally made in China, made some refinements to it. Okay, we've took, we've taken our learnings and moved forward. The commuter bike we dropped, and it just it wasn't where I wanted the brand to be. It wasn't where I wanted the brand to focus on, and so dropped that and just started with the two bikes to begin with. But it left this hole in the line of where I felt we needed to another bike in place to round things out. And my friends and I at that time would go out on these rides. We'd take our cross bikes and we were going and doing gravel rides on our cross bikes. Some guys would use their road bikes and they 25 mil tires was considered a fat tire back in, you know, 2014 and 2015. And we'd go out and go ride gravel and somebody, somebody would get a flat sometimes you wouldn't. Sometimes we'd get into some gnarly stuff, and that's why you wanted a cross bike, because it had bigger tires. But then the road bikes always beat you to the gravel. And so it was just this weird mix of what's the right bike? And there were quite a few events. Grinduro is a great example of one where it was very much about choose your weapon. And because there were there's plenty of paved road in Grinduro, but then there's plenty of crazy stages of single track and gravel road and what's the right bike. And so people were bringing all these different bikes and there was no specific bike that you could just point to and go, that's the type of bike I need for this event. And there was it was kind of a wild west kind of mentality, which is really kind of cool. And I still think the gravel segment, the way it continues to evolve, exhibits that kind of bring what run what you got thing and, and modify what you can. But it was around then that I started seeing that desire for something along those lines. And for, for me here, for where I live in Beaverton, Oregon, which is just outside of Portland, I'm a little west of Portland, there is, there's plenty of good gravel like 10 miles from my house. So I'm not going to drive to the gravel. I'm going to ride my bike to the gravel. So the initial gravel bike I designed was really around the concept of I wanted it to be fun on the road. And when I got to the gravel, 
I could tear up the gravel and then go ride for 40 miles on the gravel and then come back home for a 20 mile paved ride or whatever it was, wherever it dropped me out. And, and so that was the genesis of the first gravel bike. It was, you had to ride it to the gravel. It wasn't, I get people have to drive sometimes. That was the idea. And was that the Barlow? That was the Barlow. Correct. And so what sort of tire size capacity did the Bar- Barlow accept? It's always accepted 40 millimeter tires, 700 so, or 650 by 50. There weren't a lot of tires in that size when it first came out. I used the NV Allroad fork as the fork of choice for the Barlow because it was it's designed around a 38, but we can actually squeeze in a 40. So we've done it. But certain tires, it works great. Some tires, it's not as great because the fork is designed for what it is. The frame clears a 40, no problem, but it's the fork is a little bit of a limiter. But we designed the bike around that. And so that gave us the ability to really push the envelope. So where everybody's saying, oh, 30 and 32 millimeter tires of the gravel, I'm throwing 35s and who's got the fattest 40 millimeter tire I could find? And at the time, that was great. And so the Barlow was really ahead of the game in that regard. And then subsequently, you introduced an, another model, the Storm Chaser. When did that come into the Storm- world? Sorry, Storm, Storm King. King. Storm King. My bad. When okay. did the Storm King come into being and, and what were sort of the drivers from the industry and riders that you were seeing that said, okay, the Barlow is one thing, but the Storm King is going to be this other thing? So I, I have a rider I sponsor. He's a retired former you know, World Tour pro and he... He, he still races for me kind of thing. He does mountain and he does gravel and those are his focuses. And he took the Barlow to Unbound before it was relaunched as Unbound when it was DK. And uh, this was back in 2018, I believe, if I remember correctly. And he took the Barlow there and he used he was using the Barlow in all the gravel events that were popping up. And he was encountering challenging terrain would be the best way to put it. Just big rocks, big, just nasty, just eat your tires up rocks kind of thing. And he came back and he said, okay, here's my opinion on everything. We need bigger tires and I need a little bit more of an upright riding position as opposed to not quite as, because the Barlow is is a little bit more aggressive. It's not as aggressive as our road bike, but it's definitely slacker and a little bit more upright, but he wanted it even more. And so that was the main driver because it was based on race input. So it was, he was doing Skull Hollow 120 and DK at the time were the two big ones. Other events, it was working great. But for these other events, these just these handful of events where the terrain was nuts, he said, we need something bigger. And I saw the writing on the wall as there's more of these crazy events that are starting to pop up. We're going to need a bike that's going to be able to compete in those events, not just SBT is a great example of the Barlow's perfect. Belgian waffle ride, the Barlow works perfect. It depends on which Belgian waffle ride right now. But anyway, that was the gig. Yeah, I find that fascinating for someone at that end of the spectrum of the sport, a professional athlete, noting that bigger, fatter, slacker is actually going to be faster in these events. Because I think it is something that the listener can really take away. It's really easy for you to think, oh, being on one of these Road Plus bikes is what's going to make me faster. But in a lot of these events, and particularly for the more average athlete who's spending a longer time in the saddle, a more comfortable bike, a more stable bike with bike bigger tires could actually be the bike of choice. I, I would agree. If you think about it, if you're choosing between a 32 millimeter tire versus a 40 millimeter tire or a 36 and a 50, whatever it may be, 
and you're thinking the smaller tire is going to be faster because it's less rotating weight and it's going to roll faster for the tread, whatever it may be. Yeah, you're probably right. But how many flats are you potentially fixing? And how much time are you going to waste with flats? Whereas the rolling resistance of the larger tires isn't really that far off of the smaller tires. Yes, you're carrying more weight. But if you have more assurance that you can go faster through the rough stuff without damaging the bike, you're going to be faster overall. You look at the you look at some of the pros like Ted King and those guys. I think they're always trying to push as big a tire as they can run without it being so yeah. That does seem to be the, necessarily slower. That seems to be the trend. And for me, like I'm spending 30, 40 percent more time out there on these courses than the pro athletes are. So I've yeah. got to think about the general wear and tear. My day is probably more akin to an Ironman triathlon than a marathon. <laughs> you and me both. 12-hour days for you? Exactly. Yeah, me too. So <laughs> so let's let's talk a little bit more specifically about the Storm King and the, the type of tires it can... Ex so it's designed around a 700 by 50, 650 by... 2.0 uh, I'm sorry 2.2 is usually pretty good because we can make because we make each storm king individually one at a time the customer really has the opportunity to specify I am going to run this size tire kind of thing so we can modify the rear end of the bike to accommodate the tire obviously picking the right fork is always key of course in instances we just had a customer he sent us the wheel the full wheel and the tire and it's okay great and then we just we throw it in the frame and make sure it fits. So this way we can truly customize it to what's the worst case scenario you're gonna run on this bike from there. Do yeah. you have a stock chainstay length then on the Storm King or is it gonna mo modify based on those criteria that the customer introduces? It's gonna it's gonna modify based on it's this no no stock chainstay length. It's gonna modify based on the based on the wheel size the tire size and actually the drivetrain and the, the drivetrain specifically. So is it GRX? Is it Eckhart? Is it force wide? Is it Ultegra? Stuff like that kind of thing. All of those factors we actually play in to, to designing the chainstay length, because if you get it wrong and you make it too short, you run into clearance issues that it's you're stuck. But if we know what you want going into it, we can build it specifically and, and we really we're dialing in the process. We continue to do it every day for making it. That might be a good segue into just describing for the listener. What does that customer journey look like if they want to get on a Storm King? What does the process look like? How long does it take to get one? So the process usually begins with the customer listening to this podcast, seeing a review online or an ad in a magazine or something along those lines. And then pretty much reaching out through the website is usually how it works. It's very rare, as crazy as it sounds, that somebody will buy a bike sight unseen through the website. It happens, but it's a complete stock build. Here you go. This is what I want and that sort of thing. It's, it's rare because this is a very personal purchase. And so usually the customer is going to reach out through the contact form on our website Usually, usually it's me who's responding, but it could be one of our other folks here. But nine times out of 10, it's usually me that everybody's speaking to. And they'll reach out through email. I'll respond back and we start a dialogue. And it could be a case of let's get on the phone and, you know, talk it through and let's understand what the build is you're looking for. And we can really customize the spec and the build and, you know, of the complete bike. Some customers are only looking for a frame or a frame set and that's fine too. And it's let's go through the specs of that. And the process is quite a bit of email, quite a bit of phone calls if needed. When the customer is ready to move forward, they put a deposit down. 
and then the design process begins. Usually, if the customer has a fit that they've done recently and they want to use those fit numbers, then we use that. If they're here local in Portland, then we have them see our fitter and we get they get a professional fit done. And if they want to come into town, I've had a couple of people actually fly in from Northern California, for example, and have fits done here. And then I get the numbers and go to town on designing the frame. And lead time on frames right now, I'd say is about four months from when we actually, when the design is complete. Okay. So that doesn't include the lead time it doesn't include the time that we spend talking prior to and dialing in all that sort of stuff. When the design is handed off to my welder, right now we're at about a four-month lead time for frame only. Are there limitations in terms of the areas of the bike that can be customized, like head tube size, top tube length, anything that's off the table or is everything on the table? No, everything's on the table. I've had one or two customers that have been very vocal about, I want the head tube to be this, and I want this to be the seat angle, and that sort of thing. And it's a process we go through, and I'm more than happy to accommodate the customers if they're sure that's what they want kind of thing. But usually it's a case of, if I get your XY coordinates from your fit, I'm going to build you a Storm King, and that's what it's going to be. If you want something that's completely different, I'm working on an Ironman bike for somebody right now, and that's a totally different bike than anything we offer. So then that's much more of a personal process of what are you looking for and how do you want it to be, rather than I know what I want the Storm King to be, and I'm going to make a Storm King that fits you. Gotcha. Let's talk about that beautiful Storm King you brought to Utah. It had a uh, lot of different finishes on it. It did. Four. Really? And is that is four... Did it have paint on it as well? I had Cerakote. Okay. So, so let's go through. I think it's amazing the, the number of options you offer and certainly the execution on that bike. I'll post a picture of it because it was beautiful. Everybody needs to look at it. But let's talk about the different options for finish on a titanium frame. We have four different options. We Let's see. Let's start with the standard finish that you see on most of the bikes on the website is our brushed finish it's a raw titanium it's very silvery looking it's shiny it's great for just durability if you scratch it you can take a scotch bright pad and little shoe shine motion and you can buff it out yourself it's a great it's a great finish and it's just a classic titanium finish that's finish number one finish number two is bead blast where we basically put the frame in a giant cabinet if you will a sealed cabinet and we shoot it with uh, what's called media and media can be anything from glass beads to walnut shells. It just it depends on what it is and it it impacts the frame and it changes the appearance and the finish and the texture of the frame itself. It doesn't damage the frame in any way, but it changes the finish. So uh, bead blast is usually a it's just it has a different look to it. It's more of a dull look to it. From there, we then start getting into colors, and that's where we've really exploded this year for the options and the custom work that we've been doing. And if you look through our social media feed, and as well as our custom page, but we have a custom bike page where every custom bike gets a photo shoot, and we do all that sort of stuff. You can see the differences. But we've been doing a lot more with Cerakote and with Anodize for the frames. Anodize is, if you've seen the Chris King parts, they're blue, they're purple, they're gold. That's all anodized aluminum kind of thing. It's dipped in a bath. It's electrified. It comes out at a certain voltage, gives you a color. I think it's interesting, David, to drill into. I've seen some super intricate anodized look. Unlike the Chris King headset, which is orange sure. or red or whatever they do, you seem to have a technique in which you've got the titanium frame, which is maybe the, the brushed titanium or whatever, and then small areas that are anodized. 
Yeah, it's just a matter of the artwork that we do. Every custom frame that we do, short of it just being, I just want logos done, but if there's artwork involved, I have a graphic artist on staff who has been in the art world for quite some time. He's a cycling buddy of mine. We've known each other for years, but he's an artist, a true artist kind of thing, like he does art shows and, and all that sort of good stuff. And he designs all the bikes, so every single bike is never repeated. Each individual bike is a rolling piece of art. If you want the bike you're seeing, the show bike that we have on the website, I could do something similar, but it'll never be that again. It'll be it'll be a sister bike. It won't be an identical twin kind of thing. But yeah, we get a little crazy with the finishes that we do. And then we mix all of that in with Cerakote, which is we've, we've been using paint, wet paint for quite some time. And paint's awesome. It You can color match with it. And we still do wet paint if a customer requests it. You can color match very specifically to a specific item if you have it. You can mix colors and that sort of thing. What we found with paint, though, and with gravel bikes in particular, is it's not as durable as we would like. And the problem is that if you get a rock strike on your titanium gravel bike with paint, it is possible it could chip. And so that's not really an ideal situation. So we switched to Cerakote, which is a ceramic that's cured onto the frame. And it's actually used on guns, tanks, rocket parts, jet fighters, as whenever you see the paint that's on these vehicles and, and these munitions, if you will, that's Cerakote. And it's super resistant to a heat damage from any sort of debris flying out of it. Heck, if somebody can shoot a gun at a tank and the, the tank's fine because of the Cerakote and that sort of thing, I'm pretty confident the bike is going to be okay from a rock strike. And and yeah, our painter is able to actually mix all of these all of these four different finishes together. And we're able to make these incredible bikes of just total variety of just really just pushing the limits. The Cerakote was the one I was least familiar with. And a couple builders were using it out there in Utah at the Envy Builder Roundup. How is it actually applied? Is it applied like a paint or anodization? No, it's more of a paint. It's sprayed on. So there is a masking process that goes on. The, the masking actually takes the most time for the bike itself, for the actual paintwork to be done. And basically, once the bike is masked up, you pretty much, as you peel off the layers and as you spray it and that sort of thing, and then when all is said and done, you cure the bike. It goes into an oven, it cures, and it can be sprayed in the morning, cured by lunch, and ship out in the same day in the afternoon and it's done like you don't have to worry like the paint's soft or it needs to still time just it's ready to ship so it's pretty crazy and it's super durable and is it something that you can apply in almost any design on the bike to any part of the bike just about any design it's really the limitation of the of my artist and of the painter and being able to mask it sometimes there are issues with tube shapes and that you're people thinking People think of art and they think in a two-dimensional sense as a flat canvas and the art's applied to it. But the reality is bicycles are three-dimensional round tubes. There is no hard point to start and stop here and there. So sometimes you have to make decisions and you have to make choices about how the artwork is going to lay on the frame itself. Because sometimes it may not work. Even the best intentions, it's like, ah, it's just not going to look right. And the tubes aren't exactly large like a canvas. So you have to think those things through. So Yeah, I think that's the value in having your artist be also a cyclist. They understand how the bike is constructed and the tube shapes and everything. And also how it plays out, how it's going to exactly. look visually from 
within a peloton to out there on the gravel road. Yeah, absolutely. No, he's fantastic about making the bike stand out for sure. And this particular show bike is, I think it's, I think it's one of my favorites, period. There are some others that we've done that are pretty amazing as well. And it, it would be hard, honestly, to stack them all up next to each other and pick one. So it's a rough thing. So I'll take this one for right now and go, this is my favorite for the time being. Nice. Are there other trends in the gravel market that you're looking forward to exploring? I think I'm interested to see where suspension goes. It's, I'm not saying I'm fully committed to suspension and I think it should be on all bikes. I think it's certain applications in certain arenas and I don't necessarily think it should be a mountain bike fork, for example, that's just slimmed down. I think it needs to be its own technology because I think gravel is different and I think there needs to be different engineering behind the design of the fork itself. It needs to be lighter. It does need to be sexier and it needs to, it's minimal travel. We don't need, you don't even need a hundred millimeters of travel for a gravel bike. And it's at some point, again, I always go back to the original, my Barlow of you have to ride. You could ride from your house on the pavement to the gravel, ride back to the pavement, ride back home. So the bike should be able to handle both. Other than that, if it's just only good off-road, then it's really a drop bar mountain bike at that point. I'm interested to see where that goes. I think dropper posts will continue to, I think that's more of an immediate trend that's coming. I just, I see the value of it. And I saw it at Grodio. There were guys that were just bombing down those descents, baby head rocks, and just blasting down them on 50 mil tires and a dropper post because they got the saddle out of the way. And it, it, it does add to the capability of the bike. And then when we got out on the road, they popped the seat back up and everything was fine. Yeah, that was my technique. I knew I was gonna get gapped off on all the climbs, but I had a hope, I had a hope if I rode my bike hard with that dropper post down on the descents, that I might just bridge back up to the group that just dropped me. Yeah, exactly. And no, it works great. I too, and the listener well knows, I'm, I'm fascinated by the idea of suspension in gravel. Mm-hmm. All your points are spot on. It's going to have to be this delicate balance to not take away the capabilities. We're not trying to build mountain bikes here. They still right. need to be bikes that can get fast on the road, but to each their own in terms of gravel, right? We've got listeners all over the world whose experiences are dramatically different. And what I hope is that it just becomes this type of thing where you look at someone who has a more aggressively set up gravel bike and you just understand that's probably what they have in their backyard. And someone right. who's riding the Barlow with 32s on it, that could be totally capable. It could be overkill for the types of gravel roads they ride, but to exactly. each their own. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. It, it's We see the same sort of thing with mountain bikes. There's this trend towards, not a trend that's here. I wouldn't call it a trend. And I'm a big fan of it myself. Big hit long travel bikes with slacked out angles that basically five years ago were downhill bikes and now they're single crown enduro bikes and guys are we're doing i'm doing crazy jumps on the weekends and all that sort of stuff but does the person in florida for example or texas where it's pancake flat for the most part in it and i'm sure there are technical steep places where you need it so i apologize if i'm not i'm not trying to characterize the entire state that way but generally speaking florida is pretty flat so do you need a long travel slacked out bike? Probably not a thing. And to your point about the gravel, there's places where that a 32 mil tire is going to be perfect there. And there's other places where a 50 mil tire and it's their backyard. So yeah, I, I would totally agree with that. You'll start to get that feedback next season in 2022 for people running full um, front suspension forks on their bikes 
And it would be yeah. curious to see, much like your professional athlete gave the feedback that ultimately led to the Storm King, we may see that feedback coming back saying, having a little bit of suspension on the front simply makes the bike faster. And if it's faster, people are going to go for it from a race perspective. Yeah, no, I would agree. At some level, it is 1990 for a mountain bike. But at the same time, it's the gravel bikes of today are far more capable than those what were mountain bikes back then. It's pretty impressive with how the bike has evolved. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I had that same feeling back in the early 90s around mountain biking that Every year, every month, it seemed like a new idea was being put forward and people were testing and learning. And it took, it was this great and super enjoyable journey if you were involved in it to watch it happen. Yeah, no, absolutely. It was a lot of fun. And it's, I think gravel is going through the same sort of evolution. Exactly. We're all here. We're all listening. We're all involved. The community has all eyes on the innovation. Super exciting time. I appreciate you joining me today, Dave, and giving us a little more of an overview, a deep dive into Sage Titanium. I love the work that you showed in Utah, and I wish you all... Thanks. I really appreciate it. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Big thanks to Dave for joining us this week. I have to say, I really do love that Storm King. It ticks a lot of boxes for me. The finish work was beautiful. The clearances are right up my alley, and I think it would be a hell of a lot of fun to ride that bike. Also, another big thanks to Envy for sponsoring the podcast this week and for sponsoring this entire series. It's really been a pleasure getting introduced to a lot of their partners around the world, looking through their componentry and touring their factory. I've mentioned it on earlier podcasts, but I was very impressed with the amount of testing they do in-house and just the fabrication process in general in Ogden, Utah. The attention to detail, the passion of the employee base, and everything about Envy's work there in the United States just really makes me happy. So be sure to check them out. When you support our podcast partners, you're supporting the podcast itself. I wouldn't be able to continue doing what I'm doing without their support. And I wouldn't do this without your support. The Gravel community has been super embracing of what I've been doing, and I've loved getting to know some of you in in in-person events, but more broadly through the ridership community. If you're not already a member of this free community, just visit www.theridership.com. We'd love to have you. And if you're interested in supporting the podcast further, please visit buymeacoffee.com slash thegravelride. There's any number of ways in which you can support what I'm doing here. Until next time, here's to finding some dirt under your wheels.